And this morning we return to the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. Paul's great statement about the law in its relationship to the people of God. And um, I read a book some years ago, I think I've told you this on previous occasions, and it had to do with Paul and the law. And it's a really good book. But it began, in the first, I think the first chapter, with a series of quotations from different writers uh, on Paul and the law. And um, uh, all of them were pretty good writers and theologians and great statements. And all of them agreed at one point, in, 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 in at least one spot of every one of those quotations, they said something like, Paul and the law is complicated. <laughs> It's complicated. In other words, it's, it has many parts to it. It's not simple. It's not just one thing that Paul is addressing. Because the word law in Paul and in the rest of the scriptures has a wide diversity of meaning. Now, let me just throw it out to you. When we use the expression law or the law of God, what is it that comes to your mind? Let's see if we can come up with some ideas that uh, pertain to how scripture uses the term just in your own understanding, what, what do you first think? What's, what is principally co- the thing that comes to your mind when you think of the law? Sorry? The Ten Commandments. You say the Ten Commandments? Well, I think that's what most people would say. When you think of the law, you think of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments and the law are intimately joined together. But as the story goes, when you make a part of the truth the whole of the truth, it becomes an untruth, because that's just a part of the truth. Yes, the Ten Commandments is called the law, but many other things is called the law. Uh, uh, Mike, could you just move over so Doris can, doesn't get blocked? <laughs> well, he he he. <laughs> you sit right in front of him, and I couldn't see her, so I knew then she couldn't see me. Um, so, so the law means more. Uh, even with respect to the legislation that God gave to Israel that includes the Ten Commandments, there was a greater body of legislation that's called law that God gave. He didn't just give the Ten Commandments. Those were the commandments he spoke with an audible voice from heaven. Those were the commandments that were placed upon the tablets that, Mo- that, uh, that uh, God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. That's the thing that's called the testimony. That's also the thing that was put within the Ark of the Covenant. But yet there was another body of legislation that oftentimes is called the Book of the Law. And that had to do with the legislation of how uh, the judges were to, were to uh, judge cases that came before them. Uh, matters of uh, differences between brethren. If somebody uh, gores your ox, or uh, you have an ox that gores somebody else's ox, or some, somebody destroys somebody else's property, or fails to put a parapet uh, upon their houses and somebody falls, then there's liability. There's uh, statements of um, justice that is required. And when Israel entered into the land of promise, that book of the law was like their constitution in a sense. It was like their uh, legislation of how life was to be lived in the land. And that was also called the law. And then, of course, you have the tabernacle and the instructions for the priests in Leviticus, the manual for the priests. So, you know, when you think of the, uh, the law uh, uh, that was even given on Mount Sinai, alone, at least are those three parts of it, those three elements. Uh, The priestly law, um, the law of the land uh, in terms of the book of the law that was to govern their presence in the land of promise. And then there was the Ten Commandments that was also different and unique, spoken with an audible voice from heaven, written on the tables of stone, and um, deposited within the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and later the temple. Um, and that's all bound up in, in the, when you say, well, the law came through Moses. Well, that, the, it's, it's that whole body of law. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's that wider body of legislation as well. The priestly law and the law that governed their life in the land. We, uh, from our own tradition and Reformed circles, there was a distinction that was made between these two, three parts of the law, uh, these three biblical parts, these things are, are how the Bible expresses it. The priestly law of Leviticus, the law of the land that was to, when you enter into the land this is how you to govern your life, and then the Ten Commandments, uh, and that is designated as moral law Ten Commandments um, civil law the law of the land, regulated life in the land and ceremonial law 
that which regulates the priest and his activities in the book of, of, of Leviticus. And that's the um, divisions that theology came up with. Moral, civil, ceremonial. And a lot of people criticize those distinctions, but they actually have a parallel in the scriptures themselves. There is in scripture a distinction between the Ten Commandments, sometimes called the testimony, and how it came and how it was kept, and the other laws, civil and ceremonial or priestly, and law of the constitution that governed their life in the land. Uh, That's Bible. That's in the Bible. Those distinctions are clear. Uh, The Ten Commandments was given in chapter 20 of the book of of, uh, of Exodus, given in chapter 5 in the book of Leviticus. But then you have chapters 21 to 23 um, in the book of Exodus that gives all these details of law. And then you have lots of other details of law that come in other portions of Numbers and Deuteronomy and um, and even 19 of, uh, of uh, Leviticus, the holiness laws, a lot of that regulates how life is to be lived as the people of God. And so you do have those basic dif- differences. But let me give you uh, uh, another clue that complicates this matter. Remember, the law is complicated. Paul's view of the law is complicated. That's not the only way law is used in the Bible. The Greek word namos is used in other ways as well. Can anybody think of other ways that the word law is used just as you read your New Testaments. You're going to come up with this over and over and over again. How else is law used? How about when a writer says, as the law says? What's that referring to, do you think? But sometimes it's not the books of the, the, the parts of the law that, that regulate life. I'm sorry? It's just part of the Okay, the law is scripture, scripture itself. When God speaks in his word, uh, his word is law. Because you see, the New Testament word namos is really a translation of the Hebrew word Torah. And the Hebrew word Torah means more than just what God gave Israel at Sinai. It refers to all of his words. All of his commandments are law because Torah actually means instruction. It's divine instruction. Sometimes God instructs us by commandments. Sometimes he instructs us by way of, here's what justice demands in this situation, in that situation, in that situation, such as it governed their life in the land. When God gives instruction about worship, that's also law. That's Torah. That's how worship is to be conducted. It's all part of instruction. So all of the instruction of the word of God is, um, is, is law. I mean, you think of the uh, Psalms that say the law of the Lord is perfect, uh, converting the soul. The precepts of the law are uh, right, uh, making wise the simple. The, it gives up like seven different words for the same thing. It's talking about God's word. God's word is law. God's word is precept. God's word is testimony. God's word is counsel. And God's word is all these dimensions. And you find that it's Psalm 119 as well. About seven different words that are given to describe the Bible. The word that God gives of, of special revelation in the scriptures. But that's called law. What about Jesus instructing uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, showing them from the law, the prophets and the Psalms, all the things concerning himself. What does the law mean there? What's that? No, well, he, he, actually, there's, there's three set parts of it, though. There's the law, the writings, and the Psalms. So you have the, I'm sorry, the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the law, the prophets, and the writings. Those are the three divisions of the law. Uh, and the law, in that sense, the term namas, or the term Torah in the Old Testament, that's referring to the five books of Moses. That's referring to Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The five books of Moses are the law. And so you have all these different meanings for law in Scripture. Sometimes law means specific laws. Maybe the law of circumcision. Uh, that's a law that was given by God. And there were people that were saying, unless you be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you can't be saved. And, and the law became identified with the ceremonies. It became identified with certain commandments and not others. I mean, you think of Colossians chapter 2. Paul speaks of the law that consists in... Um, let me get the exact language. In Ephesians 2, you have um, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. See, of law, 
of commandments, but that law of commandments is specifically what is expressed in ordinances. Enjoy speaking, those ordinances are the feast days, the fast days, it's uh, circumcision, it's uh, those things that would specifically make the Jew different from the Gentile. And then sometimes Paul speaks of a law that wasn't even given to Israel, but pertains to all people in all places. When he speaks in chapter 2 of Romans of the work of the law that's written in the hearts, even of those that haven't been given the law in terms of the special revelation of God in Scripture. So you're writing this down? How many different meanings of law? Can, can I mean, do you see how it begins to become complicated? It becomes difficult to just, what does Paul mean in, in a given text? He doesn't always tell us. And sometimes we just have to reason it through or think it through or see it in relation to other scriptures to come to a, a, a judgment. And, and sometimes our judgments need to be held uh, with an open hand. We may be wrong. So we can't be utterly dogmatic about everything. And then... To top it all off, and, and maybe there's more to be said, but this at least needs to be said, is that um, Paul speaks in verse 21 of Romans 7, he says, I find it to be a law. <laughs> I find it to be a law. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Um, he says, I see in my members another law. And, and he sees it in his hands, he sees it in his feet, he sees it in his eyes and in his ears. The things his body does, the things, the way he lives his life in the world. He says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. In, in, in my mind, I have a law that's subject to God's law, subject to God's word. And yet in my members, there's another law that's saying, don't do it. So there's a law of sin and of death that's within my members. He serves the, I serve the law of sin in uh, verse 25. He finds it within his members. With his mind, he serves the law of God. That's his intention, his desire, his aspiration is to be always obedient to the law of God. And yet there's this other law within him that brings him captive to sin. And, and he says, who shall deliver me from this body of death? So law there means a principle that regulates my life. It's not a written law. He just finds within his own members there's something that's pulling him away from God's law and making him subject to the law of sin, which is not really something you write out. I guess you could say it's everything that's contrary to God's written word. But uh, you see, it's a principle within his, within his body. There's the principle of sin that makes him captive to the law of sin and of death. So anyway, you have all these meanings. So it makes it a complicated matter. And uh, as I was thinking about this, uh, I was thinking that um, we, we, that's the reason you see in Paul that he makes both positive and negative statements about the law. And you wonder, what does he think about the law? Is it good or is it bad? Is it, uh, there are positive statements and there's negative statements. So Barbara? When Jesus speaks every time in the Bible, that's considered law? When Jesus speaks every time in the Bible, that's considered part of the law? Well, uh, well, not the law, but you can say it's a law uh, in the sense of the law of Christ. Paul uses that language. He uses that language in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Um, when he says, uh, I'm not under the law, but I'm, un- I'm in law to Christ. I have a relationship to Christ where Christ governs and he rules all that I do. So I'm in law to Christ. But I'm not necessarily subject to the law of circumcision. I'm not subject to the law of days and uh, feasts and fastings and such. The, those are things that uh, we are no longer under. But yet it's part of divine instruction. So everything in scripture is part of divine instruction. So in the widest sense, all of the Bible is law. Because all of the Bible teaches. And hence all of the Bible is Torah. Okay, But in a more limited sense, it's the rules and regulations and commandments that uh, govern the priests, or govern life in the land, or govern moral judgments in general, which is what you find in the Ten Commandments. Um, And then uh, law can also be used in terms of principles. But sometimes it's negative and sometimes it's positive. But it it depends on what, uh, what, what Paul is addressing. And I think what he's addressing is he's addressing a lot of people like, like the Judaizers that we read about in Acts chapter 15, who were saying, except you be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you can't be saved. 
That's really the thing he's coming against. The idea that the law is salvific or saving. That the law somehow can help us in our sin. Because again, the book of Romans is all about the fact that sin has leveled us. The gospel levels us in grace. That makes no distinction. We all receive the common blessings of this great salvation. And so you have this great disparity between what we are in Adam and what we are in Jesus. What we are in sin and what we are in grace. And I think what the Judaizers were doing is they were coming along and saying, well, well Paul, life is not that uh, drastically separated between just two categories. Because, yeah, okay, we're, we're, we're in bad shape in Adam. Uh, sin and death and condemnation comes in Adam. And, uh, yeah, great things happen in Jesus. But, you know, we also have a help that gets us maybe to Jesus in a sense or somewhere in between. And we can have some confidence in or some way in which the law wins its way into the whole salvation picture. The law is some middle ground. I think what Paul's doing in Romans, he's saying, no, though the law in one sense is good, it's holy, it's righteous, it's spiritual, in one sense it's, it's everything good. Nothing, you can't say anything negative about the law. You can't say the law is sin. Yeah, he says, what shall we say then? Verse 7 of chapter 7, that the law is sin? Is that what we're saying? No, we're not saying the law is sin. We're saying the law can't save, but he says, by no means. The law has a use, it has a function, it has a purpose. But the function of the law is always subject to the gospel. When we view the law under the authority of the gospel, under the blessings of the gospel, under the priority of the gospel, it seems to me Paul has good things to say about the law. When you see the law in and of itself as if it was a saving way to get to God, a way to climb up the ladder into heaven... Paul says, no, no, the law can't help us a bit in that whole enterprise. And Jews who were confident in the law, they boasted in the law. He says in chapter 2, the reference to the Jews, the Jews boasted in the law. The law was not to be their boast. Yahweh was to be their boast. The covenant of God of Israel was the one they were to glory in. They were to glory in the Lord, not in the law. The law came after redemption from Egypt. God came and showed mercy to these to the slaves in their captivity in Egypt. He, he heard their cry. His heart was moved. He came with his compassion to enslaved people. And he brought a great deliverance about. And that was before the law was given on Sinai. The law was given on Sinai to a redeemed people. To a people that were rescued from Egyptian bondage. The people that were freed. And they were free to worship God and to serve God. And the law comes as a way that God says, here's how you're to worship me. Here's how you're to serve me. But you see, what often happens is people say, well, it's the law that's the thing that's all important, apart from the saving act of God. Now, God tries to make it clear to them, I am the Lord your God, I'm Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the house of bondage. That prefaces the commandments. Before the commandments, that's what God says. He says, remember who I am. And when we remember who he is and our boast is in him, then our, 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 our motives are right and hence our actions will be right even because we want to honor him. We want to, bless, we want to praise him. We want to live to the praise of the one who saved us. And that was how the law was given in the Old Testament, and that's what Paul's arguing for. He's arguing that the law should be seen in the light of this new rescue operation of God, not from Egyptian bondage, but from sin and condemnation, that Jesus has come to effect. Jesus has come to rescue us from our sin and from ourselves, and to bring us out of the realm of sin, into the realm of his grace, uh, that we might boast in him. Our glory might be in him. And if our glory is in him, then we can see the law in a good way. We can see the law in a right way. Now, sometimes, yes, Barbara, go ahead. So, in the Old Testament, um, the Pharisees, they only... Well, the Old Testament, were not, they didn't have Pharisees in the Old Testament. Okay. Pharisees were New Testament. Okay, well, didn't they only live by the law? Well, they li- yes, they were to obey the law, but they were to obey the law as an expression of praise and thanksgiving to the God who saved them. 
So in other words, it, there was the relationship God established with them in saving them from Egyptian bondage. That was the primary thing. He, uh, Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go that they might what? They might do my law? No. Let my people go that they might worship me. That they might worship me. So it just, wasn't just an external code. It wasn't just do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. What Simon says? It was love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We did the passage of Deuteronomy chapter, I believe it's 10.5. Let's just turn there. Book of Deuteronomy. We looked at this uh, one summer in the evening service. That's 10.12. 10.12. Where we have several statements in the scriptures about the things that the Lord requires. What are the things that the Lord requires of you? Um, And those statements, uh, this is one of them. This is one of the early ones of the things that God requires. You see in chapter 10 and verse 12 of Deuteronomy, And now Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you? You see the personal relationship. This is Yahweh your God. Personal pronoun that's used. It's not just God far away, removed, different separate from your God your God who has saved you and delivered you what does he require of you as a saved and redeemed people a people rescued from Egyptian bondage but to fear Yahweh your God to walk in all his ways to love him to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and there's five duties that are here and I'm going to get back to the thing I've tried to tell you. When you see odd numbers, often in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, one of the ways they would take like five things and a lot of times seven things. Like in the book of Proverbs, it speaks about six things the Lord requires. And it's not as if the writer forgot. He's just drawing attention to the fact, yea, seven. <laughs> yea, seven. Six things that the Lord hates. Yea, seven that he abhors or abominates. And it's not just he's, he forgot, oh, uh, I said six, but I really meant seven. He's drawing attention to the fact that it's seven things. That's why he does that. He's trying to draw your attention to the fact that I'm giving you seven things. Not six, giving you seven things. And why? Because in a list of seven things, it's generally the fourth one that's central. Because you have three on one side and three on the other side. And the central thing is usually the thing of principal importance usually has to do with something to do with the heart, something to do with the inner life. And what you have here in these five things is a central thing. And in five things, it would be the third. Two on one side, two on the other side. You see the point? When you have have an odd number of things, you take the central one, and that becomes the most important thing that everything else revolves around. And so you have it here. What's the third, uh, the third thing? Well, it's to love the Lord your God. You see it? Fear the Lord your God. Walk in His ways. To love Him. To love Him. To love Him. That's the principal and most important thing, is that you love Him. And everything else revolves around that. Fearing Him. Walking in His ways. Keeping the commandments and statutes. Serving the Lord. That's the other one. With all your heart and soul. It all revolves around loving him. Loving him is the chief commandment. Which is why Jesus says about the law and the prophets now. He doesn't say this about the New Testament. He doesn't say, well look, in the Old Testament you just had to keep the law. But in the New Testament now you have to love God. No. He says the, the, the law... You know, they came to him and they said, which is the great commandment of the law? He's talking about the Old Testament. They're talking about the Old Testament. Of all the law God has given in the Old Testament, what is the greatest commandment? And what does Jesus say? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it's interesting. He didn't. In, in, that's not an innovation. That's not something new that Jesus brought. That's not Jesus' commandment. That's the commandment of God in chapter in chapter 6 and verse 4. Go back to Deuteronomy to chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, 
Yahweh is one. That's the great confessional statement of Israel. The, the unity of God. The singularity of God. There is one God. And what does he say next? You shall love Yahweh your God. With all your heart. With all your soul. With all your might. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. What are the things that God requires of a people redeemed unto himself? Rescued from slavery and brought unto himself? Is that we love him. It's he, he, he saves us to bring us to himself. He saves us to bring us into a relationship with himself. And then he saves us not only to bring us into a relationship with himself, but to bring us into a relationship with others. Because that's where the second great commandment comes in. The second is like unto it. In other words, it's not, it's not that you leave loving the Lord and now you're going to leave loving the Lord and you're going to love your neighbor. But for your love for the Lord, you're also going to love your neighbor. Part of loving God is loving our neighbor. But that's the second great commandment, is you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And again, even here, Jesus did not innovate. This is not something that just is New Testament. Jesus is quoting Leviticus chapter 19. Turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, two books before Deuteronomy. Go to the left and go to Leviticus 19. And here's what you have the holiness code is called. Uh, how do we dedicate ourselves to the Lord? How do we express holiness before him? Be holy for I the Lord your God am holy is what uh, the Lord says. And again, that's also not Old, New Testament, that's Old Testament, this relationship of holiness. And, and holiness means we're separated unto something. We're brought from something to something. We're brought away from sin unto God. And again, it's, that involves a relationship. We are set apart unto God. And being set apart unto God in holiness, the Lord gives a bunch of commandments uh, in verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you sh- and again, this is like what they're to do when they enter into the land. How are they to love the, the, the poor and, and, and the stranger or the sojourner? When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather, gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. So, in other words, don't go out there and take everything for yourself. Don't go out there and say, this is my land. Those are my vines. Those grapes belong to me. And anybody that comes near them, that's what my AR-15 is for. I'm just going to shoot them dead. Because they have no right being on my property, on my land, taking my things. That's not how it was to be in Israel. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. The foreigner. person who doesn't belong to the land. Feed them. I am the Lord your God. You should not steal. You should not deal falsely. You should not lie to one another. You should not swear falsely by my name. And so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. You should not oppress your neighbor. You shall not rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Pay the man what, he, what, he, what, you, what he's laboring for. Don't hold it back. You should not curse the deaf, put a stumbling block before the blind. Why? The deaf ain't going to hear it. (laughs) God says, I hear it. You shall fear the Lord your God. Even though the deaf can't hear your curses, God hears your curses. You're not to curse the deaf. You're not to put a stumbling block before the blind. Even though there's, you won't have accountability, but the blind won't know who did that. Yeah, God knows who did that. You shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor, deferred to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. All these responsibilities towards others. And God says then in verse 17, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Talk to him. Don't go about hating him in your heart. Go talk to him. Unless you incur sin because of him, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Second great commandment of the law. 
comes right in the midst of a bunch of regulations of how relationships between people ought to be governed. They ought to be governed by righteousness. They ought to be governed by caring, concern, interest. Not self-interest, but concern about the other. Because love is the second great commandment of the law. So you got to get out of yourselves and you got to get into God and loving Him and into others and serving them. That's what we're called to as God's people. And that's not New Testament. What New Testament does is New Testament gives us the, the perfect example of that kind of living in the person of Jesus. That's clear. Is that you, just, that's why Jesus says, you, you shall um, not love your neighbor as you love yourself, but to love, your, love the brethren as I have loved you. As I have loved you. And he calls that a new commandment. It's not that the commandment of love is new to the New Testament, but as I have loved you is really the new part of it. Is that we don't have, I mean, the measure of love here is as you love yourself. Jesus says, no, no. It's as I have loved you. That's the measure of your love towards others. So, again, all of God's word is law. This is all instructing us about our relationship to Him and our relationship with others. So, but, but again, for the people of Israel, it all was based upon an act of saving. It was all based upon an act of divine rescue. God says, I've done this for you, therefore you're to, here's how you're to live. And, and, and it really doesn't differ that much with you and I as God's people. We are saved by the gospel. We're saved by the power of God's grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And that does not mean live as you choose and get all caught up with yourself and just rejoice because you can go to heaven when you die. Yet you've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies. Our glory is not to be in sin. Our glory is not to be in the law. Our glory is to be in God. And it's out of our glorying in God that the life of obedience is to be lived. And it's in that sense that Paul says the law is good. And it's righteous and it's holy. It's actually good, righteous, and holy in itself. But it it will do us no harm and do others no harm if we are keepers of the law in the whole ethos or in the environment of the gospel. So that we're not glorying in law, we're glorying in God. And so it's not just out of keep the rules, but it's out of love. And I think that it's where you start this whole thing of the living, of, of hearing the gospel, of hearing the message of Christ, that I think makes all the difference in the world. Um, again, we live in a, a, a church environment in which there's lots of notions that a lot of it is is, is, is emanates from the Bible in, in some fashion or form but maybe not in the best fashion or form and what I'm thinking of is the way in which Romans emphasizes how through the law comes the knowledge of sin Paul's going to say it again in chapter 7 we saw it last week he says I would not have known sin if the law had not said you shall not covet it's through the law comes the knowledge of sin the law defines sin tells us what sin is and the law um, brings sin to full acknowledgement. And Paul says, I was alive once apart from the law, at least apart from that commandment. And I thought I was doing pretty well. I was living in a fashion that um, thought I was good. I was serving God as I was persecuting Christians. I did what I did out of a sense of... uh, desire for God's approval but I was doing it all wrong why? because the actual state of things was I was more concerned about my own advancement in the Jews religion as I was concerned about the glory of God That's, that was the fact of the matter and Paul did not come to grips with that reality until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus you know there are people that take the Romans chapter 7 and they say Paul's not talking autobiographically I can't see who he's not talking autobiographically this is about himself. This is about what he experienced as a Jew, glorying in the law and thinking everything was well with his soul and all was right 
while he was going around killing Christians. Then the commandment came and it slew me. But how did the commandment slay Paul? Was it because he was sitting around reasoning through, through the law? Well, the law says, Thou shalt not covet. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm just a covenant, co- covetous per No. He knew the law. He read the law. He studied the law. He was an expert in the law. He had rabbinical training. He knew the law backward and forward. He knew you shall not covet. But he didn't realize how he was a covetous man until what? Until Jesus, right? It was the gospel that convicted him of his sin. It wasn't the law that convicted him of sin. It was the gospel that convicted him of sin. It was in the light of the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, sat him at his right hand, and Jesus is the Lord. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you persecute. Right? That's how it went on the road to Damascus. What did Paul think? The God of Israel, the God whose voice he heard, is the God who spoke from Mount Sinai, now speaks to him. The God who said, Abraham, Abraham, now says, Paul, Saul, Saul. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul had to deal with that. How do I get to that place where I'm persecuting his people? I'm persecuting disciples of the God of Israel. Let's be honest, I was a covetous old sinner. More concerned about my own advancement in the Jews' religion than I was concerned about the glory of the only true God. He sought the glory that belongs to, that came from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's the essence, essence of a covetous heart. And he wouldn't have come to grips with that. He wouldn't have come to realize that except Jesus had met him on the road to Damascus. And I would say that for you and me who have experienced genuine conviction of sin, it was more, more times that that occurs to us when we sat at the foot of the cross and realized the amazing nature of redemptive love. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose its evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. See your sins in the light of the crucified Messiah, and you won't have light thoughts of sin any longer. You realize what God has done in his love and see how you have responded to that love with indifference or see how you responded to that love with half-heartedness or see how you responded to that love with, um, with ingratitude rather than gratitude. And it seems to me that's where we gain most of the reality of the horrific nature of sin. It's in the light of the redemptive work of Christ for us. And our failure to respond to that in an adequate way. Here's where we see sin in its true nature. It's not as the law gets pummeled at us. It's not as we hear a series of messages and all the ins and the outs of thou shalt not covet. Or thou shalt not bear false witness. No, we have to teach that. That's part of the divine teaching. That's part of the teaching instruction of God's word. But that instruction is to be seen in the light of the gospel. And the only place where it's safe for us to even think about the law or teach the law or expound its meaning and its teaching is in the light of, of, of Christ and him as crucified. So Paul says, I, I, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him is crucified. That doesn't mean he just went and said, Jesus is crucified. Jesus is crucified. Jesus is... No, Paul gave the ins and the outs of biblical instruction, but always with a Christ-centered perspective, seeing everything in relationship to Christ crucified. All the roads of Bible truth lead into Christ crucified. And so we're centered in the gospel, and then the law becomes a safe thing. And I think that's what Paul is really telling uh, the, the, the Christians at Rome. It's not that the law is sin. It's not that the law is bad. It's not that the law is evil. The problem is we're evil. We're sold under sin. I know that in me that is in my flesh there dwells not one good thing. I can't do anything in myself to get myself out of the mess I'm in as a result of sin. But God's done something in His grace He's provided a Savior. 
He's provided one who comes to help us. He comes not only to eradicate our guilt, but to give us power to serve. That we might bear fruit unto God. It's that whole matter of that marriage relationship we talked about last week, where we're released from the law of marriage through the death of Christ. Christ died for us, and death has taken place. We're no longer bound as we once were to the law. We're now bound to Jesus. He's, a, he's our new husband. And he gives us help in our needs. And he gives us aid to serve. And so it's not that the law is sin. Sin is in us. He says, sin, verse 11. Let's, let's just look a little further. We, we got about uh, verse uh, 8 and 9 last week. And we talked about sin. See, see, he uses the expression, seize an opportunity through the commandment. It produced in me all kinds of covetousness. See, because I thought I was a lawkeeper. I thought when I was only seeing the law in terms of an external code, I felt, oh, my relationship with the law is pretty good because I'm doing it. Um, um, nobody could say I killed anybody. Nobody could say I slept with somebody else's wife. Nobody could say I went around stealing and pilfering from the local store. Or nobody could say the external commandments I all kept. So he says in Philippians, according to the law, I was blameless. All the external requirements I did. I did it with great, um, great care. I was... Uh, Meticulous in all that I did in the keeping of the law of God. You know, the Pharisees want you to to tithe mint, anise, and cumin. I, I was there with tithing the mint and the anise and the cumin. Jesus' critique is you've overlooked the weightier matters of the law. Part of that's mercy. He really didn't show much mercy. So, so people became selective. Because they were thinking of the law as this code of conduct that's external to them that doesn't say in any part of that law you shall have mercy, does it? Is that one of the Ten Commandments, you shall have mercy? No, it's not. Not in the commandments of God. You shall have mercy. You shall show compassion. You shall feed the poor. doesn't say that. So you see, the heart can be real hardened when we're doing all the little external things and not seeing that this is all that touches upon the heart. And that's where coveting is, is revolutionary because it brings us to see that it's inward. But you don't covet with your feet or your hands or your eyes or your ears. You covet with your heart. And so you're a thief in your heart as you steal the reputation of other people with your slander. It doesn't say you should not slander. It says you shouldn't lie. But you go around telling the truth about people in a negative way. Say, it's the truth. You know, it's a defense against libel that it's true. So I haven't libeled you. It's true. But who needs to know? See, it's out of love to God and love to neighbor that we serve. It's out of the reality of the love we've been shown that we are informed on how to serve. But again, the commandment comes and um, when we realize it's external, it's internal, not just external, um, it slays us. We have no hopes after that when we come to see that I'm a I'm a persecutor of the disciples of Yahweh. I put them to death. What do you do? What do you do when you learn that? I've been living all my life thinking I'm serving the God of Israel and you're putting his people to death. What do you do then? You're dead. Until <laughs> so you come to see through the death and resurrection of Jesus, though you're dead, you're now dead to sin and alive to God. There's a new power that comes into play. There's a forgiveness that comes into play there's a power of God unto salvation that's the gospel the gospel is the power of God unto salvation never says the law is the power of God unto salvation it says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation you have a question Doris I'll throw you raise your hand uh, actually I don't know how to read Hebrew 12 12 and 13 in English Hebrew 12 what, what? chapter Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And 13. It just, you're talking about the law, and, and we might sometimes, we get out of the, the way, right? So thinking that we're doing good, but we, we never can get it right. Right. It's not because God guided us and the law, right? Plus the Holy Spirit, which
as God said to do. Right. So um, in Hebrew 12, when, while you're talking, it just come out of my mind. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12. I don't know how to read it in English. Hebrews 12. Yeah, 12 and 12 and 13. <clears throat> Is that about the pursue the holiness without which no man shall see the Lord? Uh, yeah, before that, so it's telling us, um, maybe you read it and you understand. Okay. If, uh, tw- but okay. we get far from, you know, get out the, the, the path. Yeah. Well, the idea is that we are to pursue something as the people of God. This is, again, this is like in the Old Testament, what does God require of us? Uh, Again, out out of his saving love, out of his redemptive power in Jesus, out of the fact that we are new creatures in Christ, we have a new birth, we have the Spirit of God indwelling us, we have the ability to serve God. Now, how's the direction of our lives to be? Well, in the earlier part, he says, laying aside every weight, the sin that so easily besets us, run with endurance, the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus. So there's a race to be run. Jesus is the focus. The heavenly hope is what we're pursuing. And now he says, uh, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak needs. We, we, we are prone to fainting fits as believers. Uh, it's a long life. It's a long obedience that we're called to. And many times as you would run a race, you'd want to quit. You'd want to drop down your hands. You'd want to have your knees just go, simply collapse under you. But he's saying, no, lift, lift, up, lift up the hands. Strengthen your knees. Make straight paths for your feet. So that which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Again, it's, it's, it's the grace of the gospel that gives us what we need. It doesn't come from ourselves, but yet we're, we're responsible to respond to God. We're responsible to be pursuing the things that God would have us to pursue. And then he says, strive for peace with everyone. Let's pursue it. Give your, it's actually the word for persecution. Persecute. Peace with everyone. You know, when you're persecuting someone, if you have a, a reason to, it's relentless. It's a relentless. You, you keep going. You keep. You keep at it. You don't give up. And, and he says, and, and peace with everyone is what you to be pursuing and, or persecuting, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So again, I think it's a, this is all responsive to the uh, uh, to the gospel. It's having this great cloud of witnesses as to what God in, in His grace has done for His people. Um, that they ran the race before us and they made it to the, to the finish line. <laughs> they're, they're, in the, they're in the presence of Jesus in glory. And we had this week two notable saints go to glory. Harry Reeder, pastor of the PCA church down in uh, Alabama. A lot of the folks in our church listened to him on the radio. Um, Maybe listen to him, uh, some of his daily uh, things that he did. He died in a car accident. Uh, it was very, very sad to hear that. And then, of course, uh, Tim Keller, uh, the uh, pastor of the uh, Redeemer Churches in New York City, uh, whom God uh, used so wonderfully. Uh, uh, they went to glory. And, uh, you know, when Tim Keller was had, had pancreatic cancer and his health was failing and uh, he had to go into hospice, his children just said, he says, he was just ready to be with Jesus. He ran the race. He endured. He kept at it. And uh, uh, even to the end, he was uh, declaring what lessons he learned, even from cancer. It, uh, just love those kind of people. They're the recipients of the grace of the gospel. They're living the gospel. They're seeing its power. They're testifying to others. And we hear that testimony and we say, well, that's what we want to be imitators of those that have lived that way and done those things. And again, it's by the gospel. It's by the power of the gospel. It's not by the law that any of this gets accomplished. Because again, all the law can do is say, do, 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 do. The law can't say, I'm here to help you. <laughs> That's only this, the help of, of Christ. He's the helper. The Spirit is the helper. The triune God comes to help us in our need, in, in our neediness. And, but it's again... <clears throat> The law becomes a good and a good thing for those who are believers, and we're going to get into that more in chapter eight. But um, 
let's just really quickly, we got about two minutes left. In conclusion of that section in verse 12, so the, the, the law is holy. The commandment is holy. It's righteous and good. Um, it defined the nature of my sin. It taught me how I got to the place where I was persecuting Yahweh's people. This taught me the reality of my covetousness that I never ever saw before. I certainly didn't see it in the light that I now see it. But again, it's the vision of Jesus that brought him to see it. It wasn't studying the law. It was Christ that brought him to see it. Then he says in verse 13, Did that which is good, since it's holy, righteous and good, then bring death to me? No, by no means. It was sin. Sin brings death, not the law. The law doesn't bring death. Sin brings death. It's just the law can't get us out of death. The law can't give life. But it's sin producing death in me through what is good. At least the realization of my sin through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. That I might see it. That I might see the reality of my sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Sin defines. uh, Law defines our sin. And through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. You know, people fear if you preach the gospel too much, people just get complacent. They'll just think that, uh, you know, they won't take sin seriously. Paul says the way to take sin seriously is through the gospel. That's going to bring you to have the most hateful view of what sin is and what sin does. Um, When you see it in the light of, of Christ crucified, that sin put the Son of God to death. That my sins were so bad that Jesus had to die for me. When you see sin in that light, it becomes exceedingly sinful. Well, I'm sorry I'm out of time. I know I took a lot of time doing this other stuff, but again, other folks weren't here, so um, I hope at least what we said this morning was helpful. Let's, uh, let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to Him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time in, in Your Word. We're thankful for the richness of the Scriptures, and Lord, we're thankful even for the complexity of Scripture. So often we just don't get what's being said to us, certainly not with the first reading or maybe the 50th reading. We're thankful that in time you do give further light, you give us further understanding. And we pray that even this time through the book of Romans we'll have more understanding of your ways and your will than we ever had before. And that in particular we would know the centrality of the gospel, that we would know that light and understanding, this doesn't come through the study of a text. It comes through interaction with you, the living God, through the power of your grace working in us. It's the illumination of your spirit that gives us to see things as they really are. And it shows us our pride and it shows us our sloth and it shows us our, our arrogance, our hubris. Our, our, it just shows us so many things that left to ourselves we would never see. We're thankful that, that uh, again, it's the work of your spirit uh, through the gospel that brings us to increased dependence upon you, to greater faith in you, and greater desire of you, and greater longing to please you. So we pray you deepen our relationship with you, yourself, and also our relationship with others, that our love to you would be ever-growing, our love to our neighbor would be more and more informed by the realities of the gospel. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your word. We ask you to be with us in the time of fellowship to come. We ask you to be with us as we enter into the morning hour of worship, as we come to you with these, these pleas and petitions. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.